0: Everyone and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse podcast. I'm Trish and I'm Maddie and we're back with season two, new season, new us. What's the new us? I started a new meal plan. Oh, that's right. You're you're drinking your weight in waters. We're so glad you joined us again. We hope you enjoyed those rewind episodes we put out for the last two weeks. I did listen to them. And I'm like, oh, we were really,
1: we were fresh.
0: Yes, fresh. We were, <laughs> we were fresh because I was like, oh, we've come a long way, So good for us. So we'd like to thank. Everyone that gave us our guesses as to the episode we were gonna cover here in season two. And of course our girl Lori H, she was on it like right away. <laughs> And she guessed some good ones. She guessed the Boston Strangler. I think her and some other people would guess like I-95 Killer and uh, the East Coast Rapist. And some of these are was like, ooh, we might have to cover them (sighs) later on. So everyone gave good guesses, but nobody guessed correctly. And granted, I know the tips were not really specific.
1: Yeah, we didn't give all that we could have, but we wanted it to be, you know. Well, Yeah,
0: because if I would have said North Carolina, if I would have said military, I would have said family annihilation. You know, I think any of them would have led right away to this case. And of course, we're talking about the McDonald family murders, and we're going to get to that momentarily, but want to give a little special shout out to a listener that reached out to us from India. Now, I don't know if I will say her name correctly. I hope so. If not, I apologize. Vanilla underscore one. I hope that's correct. She did reach out. She said she's been listening to us for a while and loves our episodes. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. Great. And she goes, and I'm from India. And I'm like, wow. (laughs) You know, like, wow, that's the power of I think just technology nowadays that you can reach out to somebody across the world that you normally wouldn't have reached out to. So thank you so much for taking the time and reaching out to us. Okay, you ready to get started? I'm ready. Because you know, I have spent the last month, Mm. more, more,
1: it's been more because we were having a pool party. And you were like, look at these pictures. And I'm like, (laughs) Trish. Not appropriate. I, I don't want to look at children. Like, no. Crime scene photos. Crime scene photos, no.
0: But you should always just plan that I'm going to show crime scenes yeah. photos
1: in any gathering we
0: have. <laughs> yes, we are talking about the McDonald family murders. And just full disclosure here, one of the reasons I wanted to cover this case specifically, and we talked about it a few months ago, because I was a little concerned because there's so much information, which is a good thing and a bad thing. But it was because I always had doubt. When we talked about it, I said, well, I'm like an 80-20 split. And through my research and coming across various articles that I've read, you know, it seems like there's three camps, which there can be in most cases. There's one that mm -mm, person convicted is responsible. There's the mm, person convicted is not responsible. And then there's that center group of, I don't know, like, I think they did it, but I have doubt where I was. I was like an 80-20 split, like 80 guilty, 20%, which you pointed out was reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And then there's those that think, no, I don't think he did it, but. He could have done it kind of thing. So I really wanted to dive deep, which mm, I did. (laughs) As you can tell from the notes, it is a small cliff note version of this case. But I went to a couple of different websites. And that's, I think, I don't want to use like the good thing that this happened 50 years ago. But because it happened 50 years ago, we have access to a plethora of information we wouldn't have had. Like the crime scene photos, the original investigative reports, the trial transcripts, the appeals, all of that. All of that information we have. So a couple websites that I went to that I want to share with you because if you're interested in this case and you have many hours you need to waste or you're insomniac, then you turn to these websites because you can just fill your time. One is the crimearchives.net and you can go on there and just it has everything. Trial transcripts, CID reports, lab reports, FBI report, I mean everything. The jeffreymcdonaldcase.com. They have a lot of the photos and I will warn they are graphic. Probably not what you want to break out at. A pool party <laughs> and the McDonald com, and of course you can always read as i reread fatal vision by joe mcginnis now maddie and i decided to we talked a little bit about it last time to do this a little differently than we've usually done usually we, i cover a case and make you'll comment or vice versa but we thought we'd go into this together to kind of give the different viewpoint
1: yeah so we're each kind of taking a different camp and honestly i'm kind of still in the doubting camp
0: which you can be. I think a lot of people
1: are. I'm just going to some kind of be pointing things out and kind of giving my reasons as to why mm-hmm. while you go ham hey, on Jeffrey McDonald.
0: <laughs> well, I and I really did try not to do that, just kind of laying out the facts. But we will talk about it. But I can definitely say I'm no longer in the middle camp. I am firmly in one camp or the other, and we'll discuss that at the end. So like we said before, this is going to be a multi-episode because I don't think... There's too much. There's too, too much, much guys. to go in one episode. So what we would like you to do to keep in mind is if whatever we cover you have questions please send them to us or things you want to point out to us please send them to us because we will address them in the next couple episodes okay and you can reach out to us through our website at criminal discourse podcast.com you can also reach out to us through instagram criminal disc pod and our facebook page criminal discourse podcast here we go let's go let's, go. let's do it All right. So, of course, we're talking about the McDonald family murders, and this took place in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Now, Fort Bragg is one of the largest military installations in the world, covering over 251 square miles. That's a big base. And in 1970, there were approximately 50,000 residents living on the base. Now, this was also an open base, meaning there were a couple roadways in and out of the base, and there were no guards. So now, of course, since 9-11, all of our military bases, you have to jump through a lot of hoops just to get through the gate. Back then, you did not. So Fort Bragg borders the towns of Fayetteville, Spring Lake, and Southern Pines. But we're going to focus on Fayetteville area. And it was named after Braxton Bragg a former U.S. military artillery commander who served in the Confederacy during the Civil War. I think this base was brought up recently here in the U.S. because they were talking about changing the names of some of the military Mm. installations, and I remember they talked about Fort Bragg. So February 17th, 1970, at 3.40 a.m., a call comes into the Carolina Telephone Company Dispatch Center in Fayetteville. Now, the original dispatcher, Carolyn Goldman, was having difficulty hearing the caller as they were talking in a really faint, weak voice. Goldman hears the caller asking for MPs and an ambulance to be sent to 544 Castle Drive. Now, originally she had asked, is this on base or off? When she heard the MP request, she assumed it was on base. So because of the military police request, she connects the call through to the Fort Bragg Military Police Dispatch. Now, Goldman, who could no longer hear the caller, but the line was still open, asked for assistance from the group chief operator, Janice Landon. So when Landon got on the line, It was silent. So remember the call came in at 3.40, but by 3.42, she could hear the caller barely again. It was very faint, but she could tell they had gotten back on the line and this person kept repeating his address and she thought he said he had been stabbed. So Landon got back on the line with the sergeant at the military police desk to report this new information and she did this in part since it was her understanding from talking to the previous dispatcher that they were just going to send out a patrol vehicle to the residence and not an ambulance thinking that this was. Just a domestic disturbance call. Now, the reason this call got put through to the Fayetteville operator instead of the Fort Bragg operator was that 544 Castle Drive, though on the base, had a Fayetteville phone line, hmm. did not have a military exchange line. So, Lieutenant Joseph Palk was on duty that night in the Provost Marshal's office. Now, a Provost Marshal is a person in charge of the military police. So, on the night of February 17th, just to kind of lay out what the climate was like that night, it was cold, it was rainy. It was a windy night and it had been raining off and on all evening and the temperature was around 40 degrees. So he was contacted by Sergeant bolware who was manning the desk to inform him that a call had come in from the Fayetteville operator. Again, originally thought to be a domestic disturbance call. So Lieutenant Palk noted that upon arrival to 544 Castle Drive, he didn't really see any people loitering about. There were a couple other MPs that had come when they put out the call in the area, but there weren't neighbors outside. There weren't lights on or anything. Not yet, anyway so nothing looked to be disturbed and there were no lights on at 544 Castle Drive. So he arrived again with some other MPs patrolling the area because there had been patrols through that area since 1130 when they came on shift there. I think they had gone, I think they call it Corrigator Courts was the area of 544 Castle Drive and that evening from 1130 till they showed up here close to 4 a.m., they had driven through about a half dozen times. So when Palk arrived, he knocked on the front door because again, there were no... No lights on, the blinds were drawn, he couldn't see anything inside. So he's knocking on the door and and nobody's answering. So he continues to pound on the door. So he sent two other MPs around the back of the building and he started to return to his vehicle because he wanted to see about getting a warrant. Because this was officer housing. You just don't break in a door in an officer's housing. And this officer's quarter belonged to Green Beret doctor Captain Jeffrey McDonald. So he was on his way back to the vehicle, his Jeep, to make a call. He didn't even make it there. When Sergeant Richard Tavere came running from the back of the apartment yelling, they're around here get Womack ASAP. Now Womack is the Womack Hospital. So he was calling for the ambulances. So MP Trevere had taken a flashlight from his patrol jeep when he had arrived at 544 Castle Drive, and he proceeded around the back of the building while Pal was knocking on the front door. Now in the back of this apartment building, the screen door to the utility room was closed, but the door to the utility room was open. So he entered the residence and proceeded into the connecting master bedroom. And when When he entered, he was only two feet into that bedroom when he saw two adults, one male, one female, lying on the floor. And he immediately left, backed out, and then came around front yelling those instructions. Now, let me describe 544 Castle Drive to you because it's a little different. When you look at the photos of this housing, you think it's a two-story apartment, but it's not. It was located in the Corregidor Court section of Fort Bragg, and it was a garden apartment located on the east end of a four-apartment structure. So, again, looking at the residence, it looks like it's 2 stories, but it's not. That second story above the McDonald residence is actually the neighbor's Second story. So, McDonald's front door leads directly into his living room. There's no foyer or a little hallway. It leads directly into the living room. And the living room is a 13 by 18, so not overly huge. And directly north of the living room is the dining room. And to the west of the dining room is the kitchen. So, you walk through a door into the kitchen. And the kitchen also has a back entrance out the back of the building. Now, dissecting the dining room and the family room, there are two steps that lead up to a hallway jetting out to the east. And down the hallway, the first room you come to two belonged to Kristen McDonald. That was her bedroom. She was two years old at the time and what you would consider to be the north side of the residence. Next on the south side of the residence a little farther down, catty corner from Kristen's room, was her five-year-old sister's room, Kimberly McDonald. Now further down the hall, On the north side is the main bathroom, and then directly back the hall led into the master bedroom. And then off the master bedroom, of course, was the utility room, which had a little half bath in it, and then it had the outside entrance. So there were actually three entrances into this residence, two in the back, one in the front. So Lieutenant Pauk enters the residence through the utility room door along with the other MPs. Now on the master bedroom floor are two bodies belonging to Captain Jeffrey McDonald, who was 26 at the time, and his 26-year-old wife, Colette McDonald. Now Colette McDonald was also four and a half to five months pregnant. I read various things. They said four months pregnant, five months pregnant, some said four and a half, so in that range. And that was with her third child, actually a son. Now Colette was lying on her back with her left arm raised above her head. She had clearly been. Brutally beaten And had been stabbed several times in her upper chest. Both of her arms had exposed wounds that showed both of them had been broken. I think also one of the wrists on one of her arms was also broken. Now, Lieutenant Powell, just from his viewpoint, ascertained that Colette was deceased. Now, another MP specialist, Specialist Kenneth Micah, was assisting Captain McDonald. Because when they entered the room, they thought at first they were both deceased. But then he started moaning, Captain McDonald. So Micah went to him, rolled him over and was starting to help him waiting for the ambulances to arrive and Captain McDonald at that time had been lying to Colette's left side and he was only clad in some blue pajama bottoms. He did not have a pajama top. That looked to have been covering Colette's upper chest. So he's found on his stomach with his left arm draped over Colette's body with his hand lying near her neck. Micah helped roll him over and Captain McDonald then said check my kids. How are my kids? I heard my kids crying. So Micah left Captain McDonald for a a short time and went down the hallway and glanced into both girls bedrooms then returned to McDonald's side now Lieutenant Palk also proceeded down the hallway to look for other victims so I think Palk actually ended up going first and then Micah and so Lieutenant Palk stopped in the doorway of Kimberly's bedroom he took two steps inside and observed that she was lying on her left side the sheets were pulled up to her neck and kind of tucked in around her but he could clearly tell that she was not alive she appeared beyond help there was blood all around her head and neck now Next, Lieutenant Palk proceeded to the rear bedroom of Kristen McDonald, and again, he took a step into her bedroom. She was also lying on her left side with a baby bottle near her head, and the sheet's for her were more around her waist, but again, she had a lot of blood around her chest and neck area. So Lieutenant Palk proceeded into the living room area, the dining room, the kitchen, again, to check all areas of the house to see if there are any more victims, and there were not. He also observed that there were no other footprints, mud, or water prints in any other areas of the home. So as he's walking down the hall, as he's going into the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, there are no other marks that he is noticing on the floor. So Lieutenant Palk orders all the MPs on scene at this time not to touch anything and to remain in place, which I thought was pretty impressive for 1970 you know, and this order was given several times throughout the early morning hours, like you guys don't disturb anything. Okay, you guys don't need to be here, go out or here, stand over here by the front door, make sure people aren't running in and out of here. So all the employees, like I said, that arrived on scene were ordered to stay outside. And those that were inside, again, do not go near the overturned coffee table or the couch area in the living room. So except for MP Micah, who was working with Captain McDonald, again, Captain McDonald kept asking, asking about his daughters at one point he says oh Jesus Christ look at my wife he appeared to be struggling to sit up to get to his girls and of course Micah would have to kind of keep him still because they didn't know the extent of his injuries they knew the three victims they were badly beaten and stabbed and he had blood on his face and chest but they didn't know how much of that was his or not so an observation by Lieutenant Palk was that initially Captain McDonald seemed to be in complete control of his faculties but later as time went on he became more in coherent, that he felt he was deteriorating the longer that they were there. So MP Tavere was in the master bedroom. There was a phone in the master bedroom that was off the hook, and it was hanging down near the dresser. So he had actually gone there because they were trying to find out where the ambulances were, and he picked it up to make a phone call, you know, muscle memory, you put it back on the hook. And Lieutenant Pauk was like, no, put it back the way it was. So he took it back off and laid it back down. So he was trying to, again, contact the main desk at Womack Hospital. He wasn't successful. So he ended up putting back in the same position. So Lieutenant Pauk radioed for an ambulance from his Jeep to be sent to 544 Castle Drive along with the Criminal Investigation Division agent on duty. So I'm going to refer to them as CID instead of saying that Criminal Investigation Division <laughs> the whole time. So at one point, Lieutenant Pauk also used his radio to contact the MP desk and ask for a call to be put out to all patrols in the area to be on the lookout for some suspects that Jeffrey McDonald had talked about when he was inside and he's yelling for his kids and his wife. Wife, and he starts talking about what happened in the home. And he said, You want to be on the lookout for one Caucasian female, two Caucasian males, and one black male. Now, this was the description Captain McDonald had given about some drug crazed hippies that had come into his home and attacked his family. Now, at the time, like I said, Fort Bragg was an open base, but there were four roads that civilians could use to go on and off the base. And there seems to be some sort of miscommunication that occurred at that time, as that there were no roadblocks set up. Like Lieutenant Pack was under the assumption when he ordered the roadblocks he was told they were already being set up so they thought they were set up but apparently they weren't set up but again I don't know if that would have made a difference because I don't think that he called right away and we're going to get to that like I don't think the roadblocks would have been successful but you never know but I think because of the timeline it might not have made a difference. So Lieutenant Palk at one point had gone next door to the neighbor's residence this was the Kalen's, and asked to use the phone because he wanted to call Colonel Kerwinick and that was the Provost Marshal to inform him as to what happened, like his boss, like, oh this is bad well and this isn't a normal no at all no so when micah returned to captain mcdonald after he had gone down the hall he had knelt beside him and again mcdonald started making these statements so i'm kind of jumping back and forth in the timeline just to get the information out there and again the statements that mcdonald had made there were four of them indicating that they were drug crazed hippies he kept repeating acid is groovy kill the pigs and then saying why did they do this to me i can't breathe i need a chest tube don't forget he was a doctor so he kind of knew medically what was going on with him. So McDonald seemed to lose consciousness at one point, and Micah would end up performing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on him. So not CPR, where he's beating on his chest, it just says breathing in his mouth, and he would do this numerous times. So, when he came around, McDonald asked again, How are my kids? Check my wife. I heard my kids crying. I tried to feel for my wife's pulse and I couldn't find it. So, afterwards, McDonald would go limp. And then again, Micah would perform mouth to mouth. So, when McDonald came around again, he started struggling with Micah, saying, Forget it. I got to check on my kids. Look at my wife. I tried to find her pulse. I kind of, kind of repeating the same things. And I think this is where Palk felt he was getting moving into more shock. into shock. Yeah. So, McDonald continued to talk, four of them, one blonde with a big hat, and she had a candle. And he claimed that she said, acid is groovy, kill the pig, hit him again. These were statements the female hippie had made. And Micah asked some questions about these individuals. And again, McDonald said there were three men, one of them being black, one woman, and that he thought he had hit them, the the men at least, and scratched them, and that the blonde female had muddy boots. These are kind of disjointed statements he's kind of putting out there. So McDonald also stated that he had been sleeping on the couch and that had awoken, he had heard the screams of his children sometime after 2 a.m. Now he claims when he woke up, he saw one black male two white males and a white female with a long blonde hair and a floppy hat standing near the edge of the couch. Before he could get up, they started hitting him and the woman with the candle kept chanting acid is groovy hit him again kill the pigs so they knock him out at some point and when he gains consciousness he goes to check his wife and kids and then calls for help so again this is a very kind of disjointed what he's saying to these mps so once the ambulance does arrive the medics come through the front door of the residence and proceed down the hallway to the master bedroom which i always thought was like why why bring him through the front door Mm-hmm. Why not go around back to the utility room? It's right there. It's right there. And you're not running them through the, the main house. So once they loaded him up, they again proceed back down the hallway towards the front door. And it's in the hallway that McDonald attempts to get off the stretcher. He sits up, swings his legs over to get off. And of course, the MPs have to restrain him because he wants to get off and go into this kid's rooms. So they do secure him and they transport him to Womack Hospital. Now, Micah informed Lieutenant Powell that while on the way to four. Before Castle Drive after receiving call that he did see a female standing on the corner of Honeycut and North Lucas Streets on Fort Bragg's base and he estimated her range to be between 20 and 30 years old. He said that she was wearing a wide brim hat and a raincoat that was cut above her knees. Now Micah reported that he had actually seen this female before like in other days on other patrols on the same corner on other occasions though not regularly. This wasn't something like
1: every Thursday yeah, at this s- time. Right
0: but he had seen her in In the past, whoever this person was, and he reported this information to the colonel and to an FBI agent on February 17th because they started their investigation right away. Now, as McDonald was being removed from 544 Castle Drive, the CID duty investigator, William Ivory arrived on scene. And this was around 4am. So he places the call at 340, 342. They arrive on scene around 350. By 4am, he's being wheeled out to the hospital. So from his first call, he was on his way to the hospital within 20 minutes. So what I'm going to relate to you next is his observations. CID agent Ivory's observations when he entered the residence. And these are all in the CID reports that you can read. They're kind of difficult at some point to read because you can tell they were just typewritten and copied They're definitely not done on a computer. But 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 what he observes is this, just to kind of lay out the scene. You walk into the living room and he sees the overturned wooden coffee table lying on its side. Now, this comes to rest on the top of a stack of magazines with a child's board game on top of them. So we have magazines kind of in a little stack, a board game, and then the side of the coffee table is resting on them. Now, one of the magazines is Esquire magazine. And on that is a picture of actor Lee Marvin on the front. And it contains an article about the Manson family killings that had really just occurred, I think, about six months previously. So investigators would find a smear of blood on the top page of that magazine. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But the type of blood is type A or AB, which would either be Colette's blood or Kimberly's blood. What makes this crime scene very interesting is the fact that Every member of the McDonald family, investigators would come to find out, had a different blood type, which is kind of really crazy. It's crazy rare. It is. Jeffrey McDonald's blood type was type B. Colette's was type A. Kimberly's was AB. And Kristen was O. So they all had these different blood types, which from an investigative standpoint was fortunate because you mm-hmm. really could separate out yes. who was who
1: before the DNA testing obviously was available right. where in
0: 1970. Yeah. So yeah. So but what they found on that magazine was either in Colette or Kimberly's blood. Now an empty flower pot with its contents was spilled out across the floor and there was a pair of reading glasses on the floor near the south wall and there was a blood smear found on the outer lens of these reading glasses and that would turn out to be Kristen's blood type type Oh,
1: I also found somewhere where there was unidentified fibers in the glasses as well. Unmatched unidentified fibers that they couldn't match to anything else right. in the home.
0: And these reading glasses were Jeffrey McDonald's reading glasses. So there was a picture that hung over the couch and there were lamps on the end table and both of them were not to stir. And there was no blood found in the living room area, only on the on the magazine and the glasses. And that's it. So the dining room, which again is right off the living room, showed no signs of disturbance. There were Valentine Day cards still upright on the table. And they could see a smeared blood could be seen on the floor near the entrance to the kitchen. That's the only observation that they made now in the kitchen which is off the dining room to the west showed that the wall telephone located right inside the kitchen door was off the hook so they had two main phones in the house and this is for those younger generations it was a landline so they were usually pretty long so you could stretch you didn't have to <laughs> so stand you could walk around so you could walk around house. on your phone right growing up i had one that could stretch into the like two rooms mm-hmm. yeah so they also found traces of blood on the refrigerator door handle the side of the washing machine top of the, stove, on the kitchen Kitchen sink on the kitchen walls to the south and northwest, and the kitchen cabinets below the sink directly in front of the sink cabinet. Now, spots of blood that appeared in the entryway seem to be have been dropped from an object, so they you know you can tell from Drip. splatter. Yeah, as it drips, as it cast off. So these looked more like drips, and this blood would later be identified as type A, either Colettes and type AB. Kimberly's. So, some Perry brand latex gloves were found under the kitchen sink in individual packages, and a search of the plumbing in the house later on would not turn up any unopened packages. So, they also were looking in some of the lines to see if somebody had flushed something down the toilet. So, in the hallway, the floor showed traces of blood, which included a trail of blood droplets leading from the entrance to the master bedroom to Kimberly's bedroom, and a bloody bare footprint was found near the entrance to Kristen's room and I think it was from leaving her room so right at her doorway is a bloody footprint on the hardwood floor they would also find a pink tissue found on the floor near the entrance to the main hallway bathroom and this I believe had blood on it also so in the main hallway bathroom there were droplets of blood on the front left side right side of the sink blood was also found on the cloth toilet cover because again this is the 70s we'd like to cover everything my family had that up until the 90s wow okay my family did I don't know up to the night know the 80s they did there was I hated it yeah. I'm like, who puts cloth on a toilet seat cover? But they did, and there was blood found on it. Blood was also found on the toilet tank and a stepladder. I think that was used to kind of maybe get in and out of the tub for the little kids. A smear of blood was found on the wall to the left side of the mirror, and a crumpled pink tissue with blood smears was found in the sink. Traces of blood would also be found on the door to the hall closet. Now, this closet was, as you walk into the bathroom, is the hall closet to the right, and then it leads back into the, the bathroom. And this hall closet contained a stock of prescription drugs Syringes and disposable scalpels. So it was like a little mini clinic. It sounds like <laughs> that's how I took it. I was like, wow. But he was a doctor, so he would have access to all that stuff. But I thought, I don't know who keeps well, you that in there. Store
1: it in your linen closet,
0: right? I mean, there was pharmaceuticals too. This just wasn't like gauze and band-aids yeah so in the master bedroom colette was still in the master bedroom at this time and she again was lying on her back her legs slightly apart one of her eyes was slightly open and her left breast was partially exposed and her left arm was extended over her head she had on a pink pajama top and that had well i don't know how pink it was it was massively soaked with blood the upper part of her body showed signs of severe beating with injuries to her face head, arms indicating blunt force trauma. Again, both of her arms would be found to have been broken and these appeared to be defensive wounds from trying to deflect off blows from a blunt object. A blood soak in torn blue pajama top was draped over her chest. This would later be identified as Jeffrey McDonald's pajama top and blood found on the blue pajama top would mostly be Colette's type A some Kimberleys, type AB, and two spots of type B blood belonging to Jeffrey MacDonald. Now, there was also a blood-stained white Bath mat with the insignia of Hilton Hotel across it that was laid across her abdomen. Some articles I read called it a towel, like a white towel, but it was a bath mat. And apparently, that bath mat had been in front of a green leather chair that was also in the bedroom. It was laying on the floor, and then mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know if somebody would sit in the chair and take off their boots. I on guess the they mat. had
1: like hardwood floors too. So maybe just if you were like,
0: I think in the master bedroom they had carpet.
1: Oh, that's weird.
0: Yeah, but yeah, that's what it is. It is the insignia of Hilton on it. it wasn't a towel per se. So the white shag. I 70s shag carpeting was in the bedroom and colette where she laid it was just soaked with blood and a large stain of blood was found at the entrance of the master bedroom too now the ceiling had several streaks of blood on it several wood splinters would be found on top of the fitted bed sheet that was still on the bed and that was the only thing on the bed there was no pillows there was no like top sheet comforter they were kind of in a pile near the front of the bedroom, the entry to the bedroom. So a pocket from the blue pajama top would be found near Colette's feet. And there were two small stains on that pocket belonging to Colette. But otherwise, this pocket was virtually free from any blood stains when compared to the rest of the pajama top that was soaked in blood. And we're going to be talking a lot about blue fibers and threads because that plays a big role in this case, would be found near Colette's body and on top of the bed. Now these threads measured anywhere from one to two inches in length. A pairing knife with a bent blade lay to the north of Colette's body near the dresser. This knife was a Geneva Forge knife and this knife had Colette's blood on it. Now on the bed, again, only the fitted sheet remained. And there was a large stain about 18 inches in diameter that would turn out to be a urine stain. And this urine sample would belong to someone with either type A or AB blood. More of a focus with AB blood, which would make it Kimberly's, not Kristen's. The word pig was written in type A blood, Colette's blood, on the headboard. And it was most likely written by a right-handed person using two fingers. So whoever did it dipped their hand in Colette's blood and wrote the word pig on the headboard. So the right side of the bedroom door was a bloody bed spread and sheet, like I said, and that looked to have come from the master bed. The sheet had Kimberly's blood on it and a tip of a surgeon's latex glove would be found in the sheet with Colette's blood on it. So, I don't know if you assume or say, but because they knew the writing on the headboard looked not like to be done with bare fingerprints, like Mm -hmm. somebody was wearing a glove, that the tip of the glove with Colette's blood came from the person who wrote pig on the headboard. And the closet door was slightly open and they would find blood splatter on some of the shoes inside. Now, Kimberly's bedroom again the five-year-old daughter she was found lying on her left side with the bed covers pulled up to her shoulders and tucked in now blood covered her mattress and pillow blood would also be found on the tips of her hair and not on the pillow indicating that she perhaps was in another position prior to the one she was found in because otherwise the pillow should have been soaked mm-hmm. but it was another clue to her being posed was an injury to her left cheek which indicated that she had received a heavy blow to the left side of her face a large amount of Kimberly's blood would be found in the doorway of the master bedroom, indicating to investigators that this is where she received that heavy blow and then was later on moved to her bed in poke. Now several blue pajama fibers would be found on the sheets when investigators removed her bedspread spread in the top sheet from her, and a long pajama fiber was located on her pillow. Now Kimberly's face and head showed signs of severe blunt trauma. and The right side of her neck had several gaping stab wounds. The ceiling and portions of her wall about her bed had traces of blood splatter now kimberly's autopsy would show she died of severe blunt force trauma to her head and stabbed repeatedly if you would like to view these photos as i showed maddie at our pool party uh, you can go to any of those websites i mentioned and they have them they have photos of the crime scene before the bodies were removed they have them and they have the autopsy photos too after they were cleared up yeah that was my
1: line you didn't want to see the autopsy
0: photos You wouldn't have eaten (laughs) after you saw that. So Kristen's bedroom, she again was also found lying on her left side. The lower portion of her body was covered with bedding. There was a near empty bottle near her head which contained chocolate milk. It actually lied. When you look at the photos it's like it just kind of fell out of her mouth really. Her body had severe stab wounds to her chest and back and defensive wounds to her hand and her pillow was heavily stained with her blood. The bottom sheet also had several large bloodstains. The wall next to her bed was covered in Blood splatter in Colette's blood. Her blood, Colette's, would also be found on the top sheet indicating she was present in Kristen's room prior to Kristen being stabbed. To further prove this point, Kristen's blood was not found on Colette's pajamas when tested. So there was a large amount of blood that ran down the right side of Kristen's bed onto the floor. This indicated to investigators that Kristen's body had been held over the side of the bed when she was stabbed. So think about kind of when your child is sleepy and you kind of roll them over, maybe put their stomach on your knees. Mm -hmm. And through the investigation, what they think from the autopsy is that she was stabbed through the back and one of the stab wounds had pierced her heart. So bloody footprints would be found on the floor exiting her room and these footprints would match Jeffrey McDonald's left foot. Now her autopsy would show that she had been stabbed over three 30 times. There were no signs that she had received any blood force trauma though. So she's the only victim not to receive blood force trauma. And there is no evidence that she ever left her bed while her mother and sister were being murdered. So, side point, something that popped into my mind was, why not? If this savage attack is going on, whether by one person or multiple persons, mm-hmm. you figure, we know Colette fought. Yeah, We know she made it to Kristen's bedroom, and, and she was attacked there too, yet Kristen never woke up. So I always wondered, did they ever test the bottle mm, you think that she it was drugged i don't know i just wondered like how does a two-year-old child not wake up to that like i can maybe if it's down the hall and you yeah. don't really hear it but it occurred in her bedroom and there's no indication she ever woke up mm. so i always wondered like how well, she
1: did have well she did have some defensive wounds you said right on her arms
0: on her hands i think there were some found like some cuts to her hands so at one point maybe she woke up while her mom was being attacked and was immediately dispatched from there i don't know but 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 you figure the others were being attacked prior to that. Mm -hmm. There's no indication she ever left her bedroom. I always wondered. It was just a thought I had. I couldn't find anything that ever said whether the chocolate milk was tested or not. Just a thought. So the backyard of the garden apartment, they did find an ice pick and a knife, what they refer to as the old hickory knife. And these were found side by side beneath a bush out the back of the utility room door. There would be no fingerprints. They were wiped. And a long wooden slat stained with blood and several dark fibers sticking to it laid on the ground right outside the door. Blood found on the wooden slat was Colette's and Kimberly's blood. And of course, they're the two victims that had the blunt force trauma. So the CID team, now included additional investigators. And after they confirmed the deaths of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen, and this was done by Dr. William Neal, and this was around, he did arrive around 4.58, and he was escorted through the apartment, and he was cautioned, do not disturb these bodies unless absolutely necessary. So he went to Kristen's room first. He did actually roll her over onto her back to check her chest. He did clear her dead, and then he replaced her body back to its original position, or as close as he could. And again, the investigators are with him, and they say, you know, doctor, please, if you don't have to disturb the bodies, please do not disturb the bodies. So when he checked Kimberly and Colette's body, he did so without disturbing them. So prior to Dr. Neal, investigator Ivory Had the McDonald's neighbor, Warrant Officer William Kalin, identify the bodies. This was around 420, so before the doctor arrived. He just wanted to make sure. These are who we
1: think we are. Correct.
0: And so they did escort Kalin through the residence, and he verified, yes, that's Kristen, that's Kimberly, that's Colette. And this was Kalin, these were the neighbors that lived right above them, correct? Right. So they're side neighbors, but their second floor, the Kalin's residence, Mm -hmm. their daughter's bedroom was directly over the McDonald's living room. Okay. So their bedrooms were over the living room, dining room, kitchen area. Okay. So at the time of examination, the bodies had been slightly cold, indicating that they had been dead for more than an hour. They're trying to nail down time of death, and we'll talk about that because there's some, they really don't nail it down too well. I mean, there's quite a large period of time. So they drew outlines of the bodies, and afterwards they had the bodies removed to the morgue. And there are multiple photographs that were taken, again, with the bodies and without the bodies. Again, that's one thing about this case. And I was, again, 1970, kind of surprised, but they prolifically photographed. Graph this scene. So they collected again the multiple weapons including the ice pick, the old hickory knife, the wooden slat that was about 31 inches in length, two inches wide and deep. Now since it was raining off and on and fear that evidence would be washed away, one of the CID agents marked the location of the wooden slat with like popsicle sticks in the ground. So like the length of where it was found. They had taken pictures of it before and then he had removed that piece of lumber, put it in a box and then removed it to his car because he wanted to protect the evidence. He didn't Want the blood to be or the fibers to be to washed, washed away. Right. So, this piece of lumber matched other wooden slats found in the utility room and in an open well outside the apartment and in a locked storage shed. And from their review of the crime scene, they found that these slats matched Kimberly's bed. The slats used on her bed were the same length, the same dip. and they had the same paint particles on. them, And they also collected, of course, the Geneva Forge knife with the bent blade. So they also collected a variety of blood-stained household items and blood scrapings from all the objects that could not be removed from the home, like the bathroom sink Mm -hmm. so the outside of the residence was searched for footprints because they had a sandy border around the apartment but they could find no footprints around the border of they collected numerous hairs and fibers and latent fingerprints and I know this is a lot of information like oh my gosh but I think it's so important because all of this comes into play later on with Mm -hmm. the investigation and with the various trials. So in total, there were 44 latent fingerprints, 24 latent palm prints, 21 fingerprints, 6 palm prints, and footprints belonged to Jeffrey and Colette McDonald. So they were able to rule them out. Further investigation from the medical and physical evidence would show that all the female victims had been stabbed straight into their body. Meaning? They weren't moving when they were stabbed. Mm -hmm. They were down. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very important point because if you're being attacked by a knife, you're fighting, and yet none of their stab wounds showed them in movement, meaning they were perfectly still, perhaps maybe already dead or gravely injured when the stab wounds occurred. There was no deviation, which indicated that the perpetrator was directly over those bodies as they lay prone and that the instrument used to inflict the wounds was a direct downward movement. Again, no slash mark, straight in, straight out. So at Womack Army Hospital, investigator Paul Conley was tasked to go by Ivory check on Jeffrey McDonald's condition and to see about gathering more information about what went on inside 544 Castle Drive. Ivory's concern at the time was that if Captain McDonald was half as bad as these other victims, he's not going to make it. So FBI agent Robert Calvary would also question McDonald at Womack Hospital, and he would question him not only February 17th, but also on the 18th and 19th, along with another CID investigator, Agent Hodges. So on the 17th, McDonald was kind of under some sedation, but he agreed to be interviewed, like giving him something kind of for the pain. He did appear alert and responsive, along with being very emotional at times and at times incoherent. So kind of what they were seeing back at the 504 Castle Drive. And his interview lasted from 224 p.m. in the afternoon to about 410. On the 18th, McDonald was under no sedation and was coherent. This interview lasted about an hour. And on the 19th, McDonald was noted as being very alert and coherent, and this lasted about 45 minutes. So he was interviewed multiple times over multiple days. So when McDonald had arrived at Womack Hospital, this is around 410, 415 in the morning, he was awake and responsive. So the ambulance pulls into the emergency room and mcdonald continues to talk about what the girl in the floppy hat kept repeatedly chanting acid is groovy kill the pigs stab him again he told the emts that he needed fluids as he felt like he was going to go into shock again being a doctor probably knew that so while in the er medical corpsman michael newman would place a gauze with vaseline over the only stab wound found on mcdonald's right chest and this was the only injury that required immediate medical care as it had led to a 20% collapse of his lung. I think they call that a femothorax, not a doctor, so I could be wrong, but I believe that's what they referred to. So Newman had removed McDonald's pajama bottoms, and hmm, one of many missteps that occurred in this case, he threw them away. <laughs> that's a no-no. <laughs> Do not throw away Anything. anything but he did. So they're gone. So McDonald continued to make statements and related that he had heard Colette screaming, what are they doing or something to that effect. So Newman cleaned up the blood on McDonald's chest, and he felt McDonald was generally in good condition and did not feel he was going into shock. So another corpsman, Kenneth Gillespie, who was in the ER that night, along with Newman, noted that McDonald stated that there were two black males, one white male, and one white female. This was different than what he had told the people on the scene and would be different what he would say going forward. So two people heard him say there were two black males, one white male, one white female. The female kept saying again, kill Groovy, kill the pigs. She was wearing a big white hat and had on white boot, according to what McDonald was telling them at the time. Now this was different, again, from what he had previously said before. And this current description, again, heard by Newman, heard by Galepsy and would be heard by another corpse named Wallace Henninger. So McDonald said that he had heard his kids screaming daddy, daddy, but he couldn't help them as he was knocked out. And when he awoke, he could see his wife lying on the floor with a knife in her chest. He claimed she wasn't breathing and the kids had stopped screaming at that point. So another doctor, Jacobson, noted three other injuries on Jeffrey McDonald. This is all still kind of in the ER. He had a bruise to the left side of his forehead, but no skin was broken. There were superficial wounds to his abdomen and upper left arm. None of these wounds required any stitching or sutures. The left side of his chest looked to be four puncture type wounds evenly spaced apart. And Jacobson made the indication that it almost seemed like somebody when you dig your nails into something that's what it reminded him of. Now, McDonald's vitals at this time, his blood pressure was 120 over 70. Gotta say that's better than mine. And his pulse was 78. and His body temperature was 99 degrees. I'm gonna stop there a minute because I found that quite shocking. I'm not a doctor, though. So I don't know what your body goes into in terms of vitals when you're in Mm. shock. But if you're not in shock after what you just went through. Yeah, those seem like really good vitals, especially if you just woke up to the fact that your family's been massacred. Yeah, agreed. So the most a serious wound, like I said, was the single stab wound, which was one centimeter in depth between the seventh and eighth ribs that had caused a partial collapse to his right lung. A chest tube was inserted on February 17th and removed on the 20th. So another doctor had also examined Captain McDonald and noted that McDonald told him to be sure to tell the MPs and CID that he had pulled the knife from his wife's chest and threw it on the floor, indicating that was the Geneva Forge knife. So McDonald told Jacobson that he had been sleeping on the couch because the baby... The cat Kristen had wet the bed and was awakened by somebody beating on him and the girl with the candle saying kill the pit. McDonald also said something about leaving the doors open These were just kind of statements he was making that the doctor remembered him saying. Now Dr. Merrill Bronstein would arrive to take over McDonald's care around 5 a.m. and his main concern for McDonald wasn't his physical state but more of his emotional one. He said he was working himself up into a panic attack like he would get really hysterical and you know they'd have to calm him down. So Bronstein could conducted at that time a thorough head-to-toe examination to look if there's any injuries, any neurological injuries, anything like that. He didn't find any, and he ordered 200 milligrams of Nimbutol, which is a sedative, and this was at 5 30 in the morning. 15 minutes later, he would end up giving him 100 milligrams of vistral, which is a tranquilizer, so the Nimbutol didn't calm him down. They needed to piggyback another drug on that, but even with those two drugs, he still never lost consciousness. He calmed down, and he told Bronstein to make sure to tell the investigators When he looked up, he was being attacked and he saw what he thought was an ice pick. So in the meantime, a doctor at Womack Hospital was tasked with conducting Mrs. Dorothy McDonald. I believe they refer to her as Perry McDonald. That is Jeffrey's mother. So he was unable to get a hold of her and she was up in New York State. So he contacted the Kassab residents and that is Freddie and Mildred Kassab and they are Colette's parents. And Mildred Kassab answered the phone and was told to get a hold of McDonald's mother and get down to Fort Bragg right away as there had been an incident. So we are going to stop right there this week. That would know that was a lot of information. But again, I think it's important because going forward, we're going to come back to it a lot. Oh, a lot. I wanted to kind of lay out what the scene looked like. And again, if you go to any of those websites I mentioned and look it up, you'll get a better understanding kind of what I was saying. But if you have any questions or things you want to point out, send them to us. Again, you can get a hold of us through our Instagram, Criminal Disc Pod, Facebook, Criminal Discourse Podcast, or our website, contact page, Criminal dot discoursepodcast.com. It was a lot. It's going to move now that we've kind of gotten all that evidentiary stuff out, out of out the there. way. I will say ending with the doctor tasked with contacting the the extended family members, I thought that was also a misstep. Mm-hmm. To me, you've just had a family a a pregnant woman and two young children be brutally murdered, why are you not sending someone to go to them and escort them down to the base instead Mm -hmm. of just basically saying, oh, there's been an incident? They don't know when they're on their way there what happened.
1: And the fact that it's the doctor and it's the fact that it's the military. Like, why wouldn't the military go and get the family? That's
0: what I thought. Like, you have military bases all over this country. You can't task somebody up in New York State to go to these residents, get them, bring them to the airport. We're going to fly them down here ASAP. I always thought that was a misstep. I I just was like, wow, that's... Yeah. Because these poor parents coming down there having no idea why. I read one thing that Miltra Gussab thought initially that Colette had a miscarriage. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was a lot of information, but it's a good case. We're going to get into it next week. Send us any questions you have, thoughts, ponderances, anything like that. Like we always end. If you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And as always, we want you to stay safe. I know we're still all in this pandemic. Wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance, Mm -hmm. be safe. But also let's remember we need to be extra kind to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. Bye.